let me begin my time with you today by reminding you in Acts chapter number two of this very foundational text that we have been looking at for each of the past two Sundays and we're returning to again today. It's Acts chapter two and verse number 44 where it talks about the assembling of the very first church. Those of you who have been here the last couple of weeks know that we're talking in these days about the church. Uh, We're talking about the covenant relationship that exists within the local church. The church was born, as you have learned, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in a moment, in in an instant of time when the Spirit of God came and filled the church, the church was born. And from that moment forward, the church has been assembling and then going out to declare the gospel. It began in Acts chapter 2 and it continues today 2,000 years later. Well, in verse 44, Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, you'll remember that the Bible says, and all that believed, let me stop for just a second, take a pop quiz, uh, answer out loud, are you a believer? Yeah, I am too. And because we all believe, that is we share a faith in Jesus Christ, a saving faith in the person and work of Christ. Because we are believers, according to verse 44, we are together, not only in, a, in the same room, but our lives, the word means, our lives are joined together. All that believed were together. I've told you the last two Sundays, I want to say it again today, I want you to always remember this word. The Greek word is the word koinos. It means to be held together in a common bond or to be joined together in a covenant relationship with one another. It's very like the word, in fact, it's a form of the same word, koinonia, which is the word fellowship in the Bible. We have koinonia, we have fellowship because we are koinos, sharing faith, we are bound together in a common bond. And that binding together by the Spirit produces as we've learned, a covenant relationship. In the local church, we've learned, we are pledging ourselves to God and to one another. In the local church, we are bound together in a covenant relationship. Last week, I had you write it down this way. Local church membership, we could personalize it, we could say Brookstone membership. Membership at Brookstone is a covenant relationship. We are bound together in a covenant. Now, last week we learned that being joined together in a covenant means some things practically. It doesn't just mean we go to the same church on Sunday morning, sit in the same rows. It means that we have some practical expressions of the union of our shared faith. Last week, that expression, as we learned, was that expression of serving. In the local church, we covenant to serve together. I don't join the church so that I can always be served. I join the church so that I can live like Jesus said. I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, right? I'm not always a recipient, although I'm always receiving in the local church. I am also a participant. I am serving and giving my own life away in the local church. So being in the covenant of the local church means that we all serve. How clear was this last week when we studied John 13, where Jesus not only taught it, 
but then demonstrated it, exemplified it by getting on his knees and taking into his hands the feet of his disciples and washing their feet. And then he said this, as you'll remember, if I, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. Whose feet should you wash? One another's feet. Within the, within the covenant relationship, you should be serving in very practical ways one another. And so many of you, by the way, have taken steps to do that this week, and I'm grateful for it. Today, we're going to move on to the second expression of what it means to be in a covenant relationship in the local church, and it has to do with the idea of giving. And today I want to talk to you about courageous giving. And when you look at Acts chapter number two, here's what you see so vividly. And I don't mean it's, it's sort of buried in the text obscurely somewhere. You got to dig to pull it out. No, no. In full technicolor, vividly on display in Acts chapter two in the Jerusalem church is a courage when it comes to giving that is very, very instructive for us. Now, before we read the passage, I want you to write this down. Here's the covenant principle for today. In the local church, we covenant to give. We covenant to give. And we covenant to give because we are stewards of Christ. I hope you would say, I am a steward of Christ. I'm a steward of everything that God has entrusted to me, and therefore I covenant to give. Now, courageous giving might sound like a phrase, maybe those two words you've never thought of putting together before, courage and giving. And yet, I think those two phrases go together, or those two words rather, go together perfectly to form a very reasonable, very logical phrase to help us understand giving. When you look at the giving of the first church, the Jerusalem church, it is, it is a faith-filled, open-handed, others-focused, God-honoring, Christ-exalting level of generosity. It's not chintzy, it's not holding back, but it's a lavish kind of generosity that absolutely is a beautiful thing. Now, I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 2. We've been reading verse number 44. And if you have a pen, I'm going to ask you to circle something for me in the next verse. But look at verse 44 again. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all that believed were together. There's the covenant. Had all things common. Look at verse 45. And they sold their possessions and goods. And they divided them or parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, if you have your pen, I want you to circle in verse 45 the word need, need. Needs are universal, needs are timeless, right? There will always be, as long as man is upon the earth, there will be needs. So verse 45 says they had all things common and uh, they sold their possessions and divided them so that every need would be met. Now, that's Acts chapter two. Turn one page, go to Acts chapter four, Look at verse number 32. Acts 4.32 says, And the multitude of them that believe. Now watch this. In Acts chapter 4, the church is growing by leaps and bounds, by multitudes, right? Because in Acts chapter 2, multi, uh, 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 there were hundreds saved and then 3,000 saved. And then God's saving people every day. So that by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, there are multitudes of believers. Verse number 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, and of one soul. Neither said any of them 
that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. Would you circle the word lacked in that verse? There's no lacking. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made to every man according as he had, there it is again, circle it in verse 35, the word need, according as he had need. Now, in chapter two of Acts and in chapter four of Acts, there's this recurring theme. And the recurring theme is that every need was met. There was no lack. That was true of the Jerusalem church. Every need was met. There was no lack. And the reason every need could be met and there would be no lacking is because of the faith-filled, open-handed, others-focused, courageous generosity that was on display in the first church. And here's the truth. These Christians, these first Christians in Jerusalem were displaying with their generosity they were demonstrating the generosity of their heavenly father. They were, they were giving at a, in a way that looked like their heavenly father. By the way, did you know the devil is a thief? If you know that, shout amen. He's a th- it's what Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus called the devil a thief. He's a thief. He's a taker. He's, a, he's greedy, he's stingy, he devours, he consumes. That's what Satan does. You don't want to be like the devil, do you? I mean, you don't want to be a person who's a taker and who's stingy and greedy. That's what Satan looks like. But on the other hand, what does our Heavenly Father look like? Man, our Heavenly Father is gracious and generous beyond description. Look at what James chapter one and verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's coming down from the father of lights. God loves lavishing his goodness upon us. Romans 8.32 says that similarly, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So on the one hand, you've got Satan who's a thief and a taker and a greedy, stingy, devouring consumer. That's Satan. And then you've got God who is lavishly, courageously generous beyond our ability to even comprehend. And I just want to say to you, I want to, I want to be like him. I want to live with a generosity that reflects the generosity of my father. I, I, I want to live with a heart to distribute, a heart to give, an open heart like our heavenly father has. In fact, not only do I want that, and I hope you want the same thing, we have been commanded in scripture, not suggested, we have been commanded in scripture that we would become more like our father in this issue of generosity. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 7. Paul writing says, But just as you excel in everything, 
You have strong faith. You excel in faith. You excel in speech. You excel in knowledge. You excel in, in devotion and earnestness. You excel in the love which we inspired in you. Paul says, see to it that as you excel in all those other graces, excel also in this grace of giving. There's the command. He says, you should be growing as a giver. You should be more generous today than you were last week. You should be more generous this year than we were last year. We should be growing in the grace of giving. And so based upon the character of our God, which is our model, based upon the example of the early church, which are our forebears, and based upon the command of the New Testament that I've just shared with you in Paul's writing, you and I should come together in this covenant relationship to serve, and we should come together in this covenant relationship to give. So that through our courageous generosity that others would be cared for, and the work of the gospel would be supplied. Let me say it to you plainly. Giving is God's plan for supplying his people and his work. It is. It always has been. And it continues to be today. I, I want to ask you do, you, do you sometimes consider, and I hope you do, sometimes consider the ministries of your church, the reach the impact of the ministries of your church. I don't mean simply a Sunday morning gathering, but, but the day-to-day, moment-to-moment the, the -day, -moment reach of your church. Do you, do you consider the ministries of Brookstone Church to children and how that every single day ministry is happening in this community and through this church ministry to families with little children and babies and, and teenagers, students, even in high school and college age students. Every day, ministry going on for those folks. Mission partnerships around the world where every single day you are involved through the ministry of Brookstone Church in reaching people with the gospel around the world. And when you go to bed tonight, on the other side of the planet, someone that you should be praying for and giving to, you are partnered with, they are preaching the gospel, they are sharing the gospel, they are discipling people on the other side of the world. You're a part of that. The outreach initiatives and the gospel initiatives here in our community and the helps ministries and the community service ministries and all of these ministries that... That, that go on every single day to touch our community and the world. And the cost of those adds up to in excess of $3 million every single year. It's a quarter of a million dollars a month for this church to do the ministries that God has called us to do. And yet, have you ever considered, no one has ever charged an entrance fee. No one's ever charged admission. Wouldn't that be interesting if you came to church next week and there was a turnstile at the front door and you had to drop a coin in? Nobody's ever charged admission, of course. We have no product. There's no product that we sell so that we can then make a profit on that product and pour that profit back into the work of the ministry. That doesn't exist. We don't get a government gift every month from the state or the, or the federal government saying, thank you for your ministry, the community, let us help. That doesn't happen. Although they want some from us, don't they? And, and why don't those things happen? Because those are not the ways that God has determined that he supplies for his work. 
God supplies for his work in one way, and it is through the courageous generosity of ordinary people like you and like me, like the person sitting to your right and to your left. This is how God has designed to supply his work. And so we need to grow in this grace and recognize the covenant we have entered into. Now we're going to learn this lesson today from our text in 1 Kings. So you've been holding that place and we're ready to go there now. I want you to go back to 1 Kings chapter number 17. And let me set the scene for you just briefly before we actually read the passage. Many of you are familiar with 1 Kings 17. Here's what's happening. In 1 Kings 17, God is bringing revival to the nation of Israel. And believe me when I tell you, Israel needed revival in this season. Look at the end of chapter number 16. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Listen to this commentary on Ahab's life. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. Now, that's not the commentary you want God to make of your life in his word, right? I mean, God said of of Ahab, he is the most evil king in Israel's history. And what was his evil? What did it consist of? Look at verse 31. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing, a little thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And we know what the sins of Jeroboam were. You'll find them in chapter number 12 of 1 Kings. uh, Jeroboam brought back into Israel the worship of the Egyptian gods. It was idolatry. So so Jeroboam and then hundreds of, uh, and then later I should say, uh, Ahab begins to lead the, the Israeli people, the Jewish people, into idol worship. He says, not only were they worshiping the Egyptian gods, verse 31, as if that weren't enough, he got married and he married the most infamous queen ever. It wasn't queen of Scots. The most infamous queen ever. He took to wife, you know her name? Jezebel. Just sounds infamous, doesn't it? Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshiped him. Now, the Bible goes on to say in verse number 32 that he actually built an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Ahab made a grove for worshiping Baal. Here's the point. He was an idolater, and he led the people in idolatry, so much so that the end of chapter 16 says in verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all of the kings that were before him. Here's the point. By the time you get to the end of chapter 16, God's going to send revival. He'll send revival to Israel. And to do it, he's going to bring a drought. He's going to dry up the rain. And rain, by the way, in the Bible, is a type of blessing. So when your heart shifts and you begin to worship Things other than Christ, watch the blessing of God dry up in your life. That's what happens, right? So the blessing begins to dry up. Chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet, says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, it shall ne- there shall neither be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word, it stopped. One day, it stopped. In order to bring the Israelites to a place of brokenness, 
God stopped the blessing. He stopped the rain. Now we know that it didn't rain nor dew for three years in Israel. And the end of that three-year period comes in the next chapter, chapter 18, where you have the famous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And then after that, the rain and the blessing returns. But during those three years of drought and famine, God has a plan to take care of Elijah. And the plan is, un- is uncovered in chapter 17. All right, so if you're with me, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8, shout amen. You with me? All right, so let's read it. Verse number eight. And the word of the Lord came unto him, unto uh, Elijah, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. For behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there. She was there gathering sticks, gathering sticks of wood. And he called to her and said, fetch me, get for me, I pray thee, a little water. Would you get me a cup of water, please, and a vessel that I may drink? And as she was going to fetch it, going to get the water, he called back to her and said, oh, by the way, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread. Bring me a piece of bread as you come. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake. Now, by the way, she's not talking about a birthday cake. She, uh, think about a cake of cornbread, okay? That's, that's what she's talking about, or maybe a piece of pita bread. I, I don't have a loaf or a, a cake of bread. All I have is a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a pot, a cruise. And behold, I'm gathering two sticks that I may go in and make it for, my, for me and my son that we may eat it, our last bit of bread, and then we'll die. And Elijah said unto her, fear not, go and do as you have said, but make me thereof a little cake of bread first and bring it unto me. And after that, make some bread for you and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And so she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat for many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by the prophet Elijah. Now did I read that right? Did you, did you, did you hear me misread anything in that? Did did I read it correctly that God's plan, are you listening? His strategy, his plan for providing for his work and his worker, his plan for sustaining Elijah through three years of drought and famine, his plan for keeping his work supplied was totally vested in a starving widow. Is that what you read? His whole hope of supply rested on a starving widow. And yet, it was a starving widow who had the faith to give courageously in obedience to what God said. 
And I think there's something for us to learn from God's plan. Write this down, if you will. Let's learn something about courageous generosity. Here it is. Courageous generosity, as we can see in this passage, places God's work at the top of the list. Courageous generosity always places God's work at the top of the list. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a list? Do you have a list? Maybe you wouldn't call it a list. You call it a stack, like a stack of bills. Do you have a list of things that you are responsible for providing for? You, nobody else, you are responsible for those things. You got groceries you have to buy, right? You got got to put gas in your car. We all have lists, some lists longer than others. You got uh, insurance you have to pay, taxes have to be withheld. Maybe maybe you've got some payments you're making on something. Do, Do you have a list? This lady had a list. This woman faced the very real life struggles that every single one of us face. Her situation was difficult, just like all of us sometimes face difficult situations. And just like us, she made consequential decisions every single day. Consequential financial decisions, decisions about how they were going to survive. She made those decisions every single day. First and most pressing need she had was food. She says, I've got two mouths to feed. I've got a son. And by the way, if you've raised a son, that takes a lot of bread. Amen? Now, God was gracious to us. We had three girls and only one boy. <laughs> I think he ate more than all three of the girls put together. But the fact is, it takes a lot of food to feed a son. She had to feed her son and she had to feed herself. Just like you and I, she had mouths to fill. And she had limited supplies to do it. She says what she had. Look at it, verse number 12. She says, as the Lord thy God liveth. And by the way, I don't think she was speaking very kindly in verse 12. She probably was speaking with emotion, with a trembling voice. I'm doing the best I can do. What are you asking me for bread? You see the famine? You know nobody's got extra. I don't have bread to give you. All I've got is a little handful of meal, cornmeal, flour, wheat grain, a little, a little bit of grain to make bread with. I don't, I don't have a bag of grain. I don't have a full barrel of grain. I can't go down to my pantry and, and pull out a 10-pound sack. I've got one handful. That's all. And I don't have quarts of olive oil stored up. I've got one jar left with a little bit of oil in the bottom and I'm going to put those two things together and I'm going to make some bread for my son and myself and we're going to eat it and we're going to die. That's what she had. Nothing more than that. And she had no help, no options. There weren't people running to her aid. I mean, look at verse number 10. This poor widow woman's picking up her own firewood. She didn't have anybody to go get the firewood for her. There's no social net to catch her. There's there's no community uh, uh, benevolence group to to bring groceries or have a pounding for her. And she says in verses 10 and 11 and 12, I'm doing everything I can with all that I have left to meet my own obligations. That's what she says. And yet, look at verse number nine. God had commanded her to sustain Elijah. Do you see that? 
You might think, well, God, couldn't you find somebody with a little more money than a widow woman? God spoke to that average, ordinary woman who was at the end of herself, and she was responsible to sustain Elijah. Verse number nine, get thee to Zarephath, for I have commanded, I have provided, I have directed a widow woman there to sustain me. Now imagine this moment. This widow says, I'm doing the best I can. You're asking me for bread. I have nothing left. Little meal, little oil. I'm going to make one loaf, feed my son and myself, and then we're going to die. That's what I have to do. And look at what Elijah says in verse number 13. Yes, you go do that. Do exactly what you said you were going to do. Verse 13, fear not, go and do as you have said. Go take that little bit of meal. Go get that little bit of oil. Build that little fire. Make that little cake of bread, that last cake of bread that you can make. Do it. But give it to me. And after you give me that last cake of bread, then make a cake of bread for your son and yourself. Now I'm thinking she might have gone, Okay, I'm going to say this slower. (laughs) I have enough meal for one, not two, one cake of bread. I have enough oil for one last meal. And if I give it to you, then how will I feed myself and my son? Look at what he says in the next verse. As the Lord lives. You do what God has commanded you to do and that oil will not fail and that meal will not waste and God will supply your need. Everybody look up here. Do you know that God knows what you need? And do you understand that he is not indifferent to your list? That he recognizes all that you need and all that must be provided. In fact, the Bible says this very plainly in Matthew chapter six, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Before you cry out to him, oh God, I've only got a little little, uh, oil and a little meal left. I know. I know what you need. And knowing fully what we need, he still commands us to give courageously. Learn that from this woman. Courageous giving always moves God and his commands to the top of the list. Second thing that we learn is that courageous generosity is formed in a crucible kind of moment. It doesn't happen automatically. It's formed in a, in a crucible kind of moment. You know what I mean by crucible, don't you? You know what a crucible is. It's, a, it's like a little smelting pot or smelting cup and you put it in the fire and you put in that little that little crucible, you put, I don't know, maybe some aluminum and some iron, both in themselves have a measure of strength, but when you melt them and put them together, they form a new ore, which is stronger together than either one of them would have been separately. She had her crucible moment in this passage because she's getting ready to make this final loaf of bread and Elijah says to her, go make that loaf of bread and then give it to me. Do you see it in verse 13? Fear not. Say those words with me. Fear not. Be courageous. Fear not. For the oil that you have and the meal that remains will not dry up. It will not run out. If you will have courage 
and do what God said first and give courageously what you do have will remain. It will be provided. And all she had in verse 13 and 14 was a little meal and a little oil and a little word from God. That's all she had. And she had this crucible moment where she goes in. Can you imagine? She might have been mumbling along the way like, <laughs> she's making the oil, making the bread. She's got, now she's got this bread made and, and her son is looking like, and she has to make a decision. Doesn't she? It's a crucible moment. She's got to make a decision. Do I believe what God said? Do I trust, do I have courage to trust in him and and do what God said? Or do I just not trust him and consume it? It's a moment we all come to. We all come to it. And I don't believe we come to it one time and we're done. I believe we keep coming back to this moment over and over again. Am I going to live with generosity, do what God said to do and trust him for the outcome? So she takes the bread, she makes the right decision. She goes to Elijah and she gives it to Elijah. I, I don't know how he, you know, responded or received that. Like, man, mm, 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 thank you. You're eating it all up. And, then, and the son's looking at him like, oh, man, I want some of that. And he eats it up. He says, that's good. Got to give me your recipe. <laughs> now go make some for yourself and your son. Can you imagine that moment? She goes back over to the barrel she knows, she knows. She just took the last handful out and she reaches in and she, there's a little bit there and she pulls out a handful and she shakes the, the jar and there's a little oil and there's enough left. She might think, well, maybe I didn't use it all. That's a little more than I thought. And what's the Bible say in the next verse? And she and he and her son ate for many days. It's a moment, man. It's a crucible moment in the fire. All I have is what I have and the promise of God. And if I give out of what I have, will the promise of God come to pass? And you can mark it down. That moment will change whether or not you live with courageous generosity or pull back and live in fear. Third thing you need to know is that this courageous generosity formed in that crucible moment will guarantee, when we live with courageous generosity, it guarantees God's provision. It guarantees it. Verses 15 and 16, Elijah says, fear not, do this. The meal will not run out. The oil will not run out. She trusted God's word. She believed the prophet. And sure enough, verses 15 and 16 says, they ate for many days and the barrel and meal never ran out and neither did the cruise of oil. Now, if you believe that, would you shout amen? amen? And do you know that God has promised the same thing to you? The exact same thing. Philippians 4, 19 says in the context of giving, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He will supply. It's the promise of his word. Malachi 3, verse number 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. Test me, God says, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you can't even contain. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God is able. Everybody say that. God is able to make all grace abound toward you 
So that you, having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, may always have everything that you need. And all of those promises are made in the context of living with courageous generosity. When you and I trust him and obey him, and we live like that early church, like that woman in Zarephath, when we live with courageous generosity, God guarantees, he pledges himself to us to supply what we need. And so, what do you do in the, in the local church covenant? You say, Pastor, what should I then do? Here's what you should do. You should live with a courageous generosity, with a lavish generosity, that you should say, my goal in life is to get up in the morning and to look like my heavenly father, look nothing like the devil. I don't want to be stingy and taken. I want to be freely giving. And how do I do that in the church? Here's my encouragement to you. Number one, start with the tithe. That's where you begin. That's how you know you're moving toward honoring God and living with generosity. Listen to Proverbs chapter three and verse nine. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits. It means the tithe. Remember? Courageous generosity puts God at the top of the list with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. God says, when you put me first and you honor me out of your income, out of your resource, when you put the tithe, investing it in my kingdom, then I will fill your barns and provide what you need. Malachi 3 and 10 says the same thing. Start with the tithe. That's how you begin. Secondly, Live with the, looking for the opportunity to give free will offerings above that. The tithe goes into the storehouse, into the local church. I covenant to give my tithe to support the work of the gospel where I'm participating. But then there's offerings above that. There are other ministries, there are other opportunities to give to. Ask God to give you grace to give to those as well. And then, thirdly, do this little practice Put a few dollars in your pocket or your billfold or your purse and ask the Lord to give you opportunities, to give you little move, movements in your spirit, little promptings in your spirit. And when there's somebody you ought to give those things to, give those little, little pieces of money to, give them to them. They don't, they're not, they're not, they're not asking for them. You just see somebody and say, you know, the Lord just wanted me to give you this. And, Pass that along to them. And you're developing the habit of courageous generosity. Start with the tithe, make offerings, and then give as God prompts you to give. At our house, we say it this way. I pay the tithe, Tracy gives everything else away. <laughs> That's the way it works at our house. But we want to live with that kind of opportunity. Giving the tithe, making investments in other ministries. And then just always, it doesn't have to be a lot, $5, $10, $20, whatever. But have a, a few dollars in your pocket to say, God... Who could I give this to today? And you know what God might do? He's done this for me before. I would go and say, you know what? The Lord just told me to give you that. And I hand it to them. And by the end of the day, somebody says, you know what? The Lord told me to hand you that. And they handed it to me. And what they gave me was more than what I gave away. That's the way it works. God provides for your needs. And so be the person who says, I want to live with generosity. And know this, that because God loved you so much, what did he do? He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. 
And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's what I want you to know. That the God who made you and who allowed you to be here today is the most generous person in all of eternity. And his generosity extended to the full gift of his son Jesus on the cross. He gave Jesus to pay the penalty of our sins. And you and I should live with a similar generosity.